You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. So I want to talk about when we should surrender and when we should resist. That's the question I'm going to work at tonight. And my slides in my notoriously lacking technological skills did not make it across the divide, so I'm just going to do this old school. So no, no slides, just, just me talking at you, and hopefully I'll make it relatively clear. I'm borrowing enormously from the works of Paul Tournier tonight, so um, a favorite author of mine, and uh, yeah, I'm plagiarizing him extensively. So, um, anyway, um, yeah. In in many ways, I think this is this is the question I wrestle with with folks at Circle Counseling who come to see me um, to sort out the troubles they're encountering. When should I resist and when should I surrender? It's not a spoken question, but I think it lurks right under the surface, just all the time, multiple times every day. We all have to decide whether we're going to give in to the demands that others are making of us. Sometimes little, sometimes big things, but we're always juggling that a bit. One person struggles to speak up, another struggles to quiet themselves, and yet both are weighing the consequences they foresee will result from their choice. Think back to the last time you took a stand on something with someone. Maybe it was a spouse, a friend, maybe a coworker. How did you choose what you were gonna do in that moment? As you reflect, I wonder if you could notice that we don't always behave the same in various circumstances. Sometimes we might be carried along and even surprise ourselves with our firmness. And other times we might give in, even against our own inner convictions, but we don't exactly know why. I want to think about this with you tonight, this question, and I'll bring thoughts, as I said, from Paul Tournier, um, and hopefully we'll see where we end up. One of the things I've noticed in listening to people over the years is this. It is not always the strong, at least the strong in appearance, that determines who wins. In our political climate, sometimes I think it's the loudest, but I have to come to doubt that too. The reality of our relationships just isn't that simple. I've seen strong people act more weakly or more humbly, often though because they don't have need for a victory in that particular instance to gain prestige. I've noticed people who generally seem to behave more weakly become desperately obstinate in order to reassure themselves. Whatever the beginning, wherever our beginning convictions might have kind of gotten us into a conflict, how we kind of got started, the final question about resisting or surrendering presses us, I think, more deeply into psychological territory for us, more unconscious territory. It seems that we are in con- when we are in conflict, if we don't stand up at the right time and resist, well then 
we can be carried forward into greater and greater compromise until we capitulate to something that we hate doing. Conversely, if we don't compromise at an appropriate time, our attitudes can harden and become rigid to the degree that we act against our own convictions. So what are we going to do? Inside each of us, there are changes going on all the time. A woman who can't bring herself to stand up against her husband's anger suddenly shows herself to be unmovably forceful when it comes to defending her children from that same anger. Couples are often struggling with questions of winning justice and respect from their partner more than about the actual surface topic of an argument. We all get dragged into arguments that engulf us, and rather than acting out our rational convictions, we unwittingly fall into using whatever our temperaments offer us as weapons to win by. We use what we have. For some, it is physical strength, while others appeal to their very own weakness as a means to winning in a conflict. They might appeal to others' sensitivity. Sometimes we appeal to despair, even. Impulsiveness serves some people, while others employ a tenacious obstruction. Eloquent speeches serve others. Obstinate silence works for some. The truth is, we can seek power over another person by being generous and sweet, as well as by being aggressive, and we all do. There are many who are always upholding love, but upholding it in very unlovely ways. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of fighting for tolerance in ways most intolerant. If we cannot threaten, we might try to trick. If we cannot attack, we might flee. We never know if the one who gives in is not doing so, so as to obtain victory all the same, but perhaps more subtly. We live in a time when social conventions have fallen away to a large degree. Our roles in society are less clearly defined by gender, class, race, etc. That's, that's really a good thing. But it also means that there's much more conflict. Let me deepen this. Our development as people requires conflict. The child ultimately has to leave the parent in order to have his or her own life. There has to be some sort of internal separation, if not external. A parent's role is complex precisely because of the question of when to resist and when to surrender. When do I adapt and allow my child greater freedom? And when do I resist in order to protect the child? And conversely, from the child's side, when do I resist in order to explore my own unique gifts and preferences? And when do I surrender or comply with my parent because he or she asks it of me? Perhaps just because the parent has become used to saying the word and getting compliance from the child. And there's even more complexity than all this. If a child doesn't encounter some resistance in their parent, that is, if the parent surrenders too easily, 
the child doesn't develop needed resilience and strength. It's like the butterfly who must press against and fight to break out of the cocoon or the wings don't develop the strength needed to fly. You can see this in offices and all sorts of businesses. If leaders are too particular, they can break their followers' initiative, but if they are too weak, chaos takes over and frustrations run high and work suffers. And at times, some leaders err in both directions. I'm trying to map out how we all face questions of conscience that are very complex and very hard to resolve. Let me make it even more troubling. <laughs> I've listened to people describe a kind of emptiness they feel when they achieve a victory that they have long struggled to win. They discover that in all the resisting they did, they gained a kind of meaning or energy. When they win their point, the joy is far too short, they find. Some come to realize that when in the fight, well, they could complain mightily, and then they start to recognize that they liked complaining. It allowed them to cast responsibility on others, and when they had won, well, now that's no longer an option to cast that responsibility. Our victories don't really satisfy us. And Jesus tried to tell us this. Very famous passage, just a couple of verses from John 13. Let me read verse 33 and 34 to you. So now I am giving you a new command, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my followers. This whole chapter reflects the centrality of our need as human beings for love. But I think these verses capture the heart of it. We are loved, and out of that love, we love others. And this is fundamental, and it's really hard for us human beings to get that we are loved, and that that is the basis for our loving of others. We are often lost in these battles trying to get love. It's the law of our hearts and our minds and our souls. We may all consciously understand this, but it remains pervasive in human experience that we end up trying to fight to make sure we're in the loved category. What we hunger for most is to be loved. In marriages, in friendships, I even think in international contests, in wars. If we examine the situations thoroughly enough, we find the one or the ones who fight hardest to obtain others giving in are seeking in such a surrender a sign that somehow they are loved. Here's my first quote from Paul Tournier, although a lot of these ideas are his. The strongest motivation in every movement of social change is the desire to be recognized, respected, and in the last analysis, to be loved." End quote. A lot of our trouble with determining when to resist and when to surrender goes to our trouble with interpreting what's happening around us, how we read in the love. Let me um, play out a 
an example of how this confusion can happen in everyday life. A young wife discovers that her husband is still attracted to a past girlfriend. What can she do? Try to win him over with love, pardon, trust? Demand that he make a choice? But he may well be weak in his own development. He might deny anything is going on, and only when the evidence is strong against him and forces him to admit that he is still in contact with her will he begin then to promise that he will make things change. That is, while he's backed in a corner when his wife is upset and confronting. But when things settle down, he can easily slide back into his duplicity. And that's the story I'm telling you in this particular case. The focus that he had was pretty childish. He wanted pleasure. He wanted it wherever he could get it. So what was his wife to do? She weighed this out. Forgive him? Trust him? Isn't that encouraging him in these childish ways? However, what about her children if she leaves? What will it mean to them if she tears the family up? She tried to choose a faithful path. She tried to persevere, so she stayed. She upheld her husband, and she stayed in the marriage. Years pass. The children reach adolescence. Adolescence is a stage when we see the world really dichotomously. It's yes or no, it's black or white. And so when the children of this couple reach adolescence, and they learn more about what's happening, well, they condemn their father. But here's the irony of it. They also condemn their mother for her weakness. She complied with the lovelessness and the stifling atmosphere that dominated their home. Now the poor woman thinks back, and she thinks she's been horribly wrong. She thinks herself a coward after all these years but she was sincere in her attitude of forgiveness. She was trying to persevere and be faithful. These are tough decisions. There isn't a clear path here. I'm gonna go back over and over again to saying, as Christians, all we've got is our relationship with Jesus. Let me keep unpacking that. This example that I've just talked about in this dear family shows that the same behavior can be interpreted as either heroic obedience or shameful surrender. You get it? <laughs> it's tough. We fear a concession will be interpreted as a sign of weakness by others and incite them to more obstinate action. Or we're afraid that our intransigence will be seen as a sign of weakness, an act of desperation, and then incite adamant resistance. What are we to do? Well, first, I want to make it even more complex. I'm a psychologist, and I practice psychotherapy. It's my life's work. I try to help people sort out all these contradictory interpretations and all the confusions and all the feelings that are buried inside. It's what I do. My clients and I look at patterns of surrendering and of resisting 
all the time to try to understand what's going on more deeply. Therapy can be used by God and people to change these processes, and it's a wonderful thing. But I would be remiss if I didn't also say to you that a person who in therapy finds maybe at first that he couldn't ever stand up for himself, couldn't defend himself, and brought on much suffering, he might learn then to stand up for himself, to defend himself. And it's also true that then he can become a prisoner of that new behavior so that he rigidly clings to asserting himself in the fear of regressing back to what he had been and it makes him just as incapable of giving in as he used to be of standing up for himself. This is not real growth, right? This is not where we want things to end up, but we muddle along. Becoming aware of the power of external and internal determinants, what's happening out there as well as what's happening inside of me. Um, work, all of that working in any given moment can help us to make new choices and to be freer. But it is not absolute and it is not stable. We are changeable beings. It is in reality more this kind of hit and miss stuff, this process of development, a work in progress, a movement towards freedom and towards a more genuine expression of our true selves. It is only as we engage again and again in careful and deep reflection of ourselves and of our decisions through the awareness of the past and how it can impact us and fool us that we move closer to freedom. For those of us who follow Jesus, this path to freedom is only possible via our utter dependence on God moment to moment. So this fundamental question that I'm looking at with my clients and with you tonight, when to surrender and when to resist, it just isn't prescribed. There's no verse in the New Testament to help you. There are lots of verses to support you, but it's a constant journey, I think, into this question. Becoming a Christian is about surrendering to God, giving our lives to the living God, entering a relationship with God of growing trust. I'd suggest that becoming a Christian is accepting this question of surrender or resistance as the new foundation of our lives. When does God call us to surrender and to resist in this moment? It's all dependent on a relationship. Christianity doesn't work like a moral code. Here's Paul Turnier again, quote, the gospel is all too often mistaken for weakness and surrender. Such interpretation leads many believers into a spirit of abdication and leads some right into neurosis, end quote. Now let's admit, Jesus is anything but weak, like when he sets his face towards Jerusalem and the cross, like flint, the scripture says. But then he demonstrates great strength in silence before Pilate and his accusers, a little before that, he's been in the temple with a whip. In Luke 12, we can find him saying, 
I have come to set the world on fire and I wish it were already burning. This is not a weakling. Here's another quote from Ternier. What is good in the Bible is not this thing or that. You hearing it? What is good in the Bible is not this thing or that. It is not a matter of resisting or giving in. It is doing what God wants and when God wants it. It is total dependence on his person, not upon a moral code. So what are we supposed to do? I got four points, and then I'm going to give you three phases, and then I'm going to let you talk. So first point, what do we do then? Seek divine inspiration. Can you count on God talking to you when you're up against whether to say yes or no to your child, to your spouse, to your boss, to yourself? Well, we can count on God speaking to us, sort of, right? We are still ourselves. We're still able to fool ourselves, so we have to go carefully here. My prayer is often sort of a variation on that theme that the Father in Mark prays, Mark 9, where Jesus asks him if he believes, and he says, ah, yeah, I believe, and help me where I don't believe. Yeah, I get it, and help me where I don't get it. I've just talked about the ways we misinterpret life events based on our patterns of thinking, how we get these grids of interpreting. So our sense of God giving us inspiration has to be held delicately, yeah? But I've had too many experiences, too many surprises my own, in my own life that have contributed to setting me more free of my automatic responses, prejudices, vices, old voices, to not say to you tonight clearly, yes, God still speaks to us today. Seek divine inspiration the best you can, as honestly as you can. Not as the person you wish you were, but just right where you are. Christianity is about God coming to us in Jesus, and Jesus closes the gap between us and God starting from his side by stripping off all that majesty and putting on human existence. And let's look at that. He's the only one who would know when to resist and when to surrender, when to choose this or when to choose that. But look at what he goes through. It's right up to the cross. He's sweating blood trying to decide if he's going to do it or not and if it's God's will for him to do it. Take this cup away. So as Christians, we need to relate to Jesus more than to a set of principles about how to live a good life. We are asked to be committed to the person of Jesus Christ, ongoing, alive in our world today, and not to a moral code. So seek divine inspiration. It's one thing we can do. Two, I think it's going to always involve risky obedience. If you are so afraid that you will be mistaken about the will of God, I fear you will never come to know God because you'll be paralyzed. Let God use even your misguided notions to lead you to himself. We as Christians 
are only called, I believe, to just let him keep working on us, to re-examine your choices again and again. Forgiveness is ours. Play that card. You will find greater light. Faith does not mean the absence of doubt. So seek divine inspiration. Expect risk, risky obedience. And third, I would suggest we must value presence rather than answers. As a psychologist, people come to me and start off expecting that I, with all of my learnedness, whew, will answer their questions. <laughs> They're consistently disappointed. More often than not, their questions really are unanswerable. The deeper moments of encounter happen when we get to know each other and they trust me with the exploration of their pain. I hold their story, their tears, their hopes with them. I try my best to remain present in that. I've trained for this, I've studied for this, but actually it's my own experiences of God, of being loved and therefore I can love. It's my own experiences of God when my own questions fall away and I simply know that I'm embraced by love. That's what makes me able to do whatever I can do to whatever degree I can in these moments with my clients. So seek divine inspiration, expect risky obedience, value presence rather than answers. And finally, look for the unexpected solutions. Here's Turnier again, quote, under every dilemma is hidden several fears. The fear of openly resisting, the fear of giving in, the fear of fighting, and the fear of being beaten. It is love which drives back fear, end quote. In finding places to dialogue where the fear is driven back, we often find alternatives that we had not thought of prior. And sometimes new synthesis kind of emerge to resolve the incompatibilities we couldn't resolve before. When we cease to set up the dilemma of interpreting our conflicts as self-affirmation or self-surrender, as resistance or surrender, we find open spaces in which to run. So seek divine inspiration, expect risky obedience, value presence rather than answers, and look for unexpected solutions. Turnier again, quote, surrendering our life to God is at the same time our supreme giving in and our supreme act of self-affirmation. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. Surrendering our life to God is at the same time our supreme giving in and our supreme act of self-affirmation. Again, we're being invited into this relational place, not the intellectual place. Really quickly, because I'm, I'm running a little long, I just want to talk about three kind of stages that Turnier talks about whenever we come up against these fundamental questions, this one question about resisting or surrendering. We're all gonna start with logical thought. That's kind of phase one, stage one. 
we start where we are. What are we thinking about it? What do we identify? What are the terms of the dilemma? Because it's going to always be kind of a contradictory at this level. Can you gain some information about it? Does science tell you something about it? Can it be solved at those levels with just more information? Is there something about it that really goes to moral consciousness? Is there a way to resolve it there? Does a clear analysis of the situation bring some psychological insight that can resolve it? Some of our conflicts we might resolve at that level and we might go ahead and say, okay, in this case, I'm gonna give in or I'm gonna resist. It's phase one, logical thought. Phase two, as I already mentioned before, God gets involved, divine guidance. We really can seek this. It's still in this sense of, of dilemma, one solution or another. Do I do it this way or do I do it that way? We can try to understand what God might have for us through objective study of the Bible or by direct subjective experience in meditation and prayer, that kind of moment when we know we've been touched by God. We can try to understand more deeply by talking to other believers that we trust and discern together what might be God's will. And sometimes through conflict in this kind of way, we just discover all kinds of wonderful things about others and even about ourselves. We might discover true things about ourselves we didn't know before. So it's a part of it. Phase one, logical thought. Phase two, divine guidance. Finally, though, phase three, at the deepest level, this is the level that Jesus invited Nicodemus to in that nighttime conversation they had, where he said, come on, let's do something really new. It's like you're going to be born again. Transformation of the person as the dilemma moves to the background. It's an integration at a far deeper level, a relational solution where love triumphs. That is the final phase, where we can find these places of relating to God and to one another, where the answers somehow don't matter like they did. But you can't get there without letting them matter as much as they matter to you <laughs> and working that through. And you do that in this fundamental relationship we have with the living Lord. Thank God for that. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.